Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo. I'm an investor at Village Global. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. Today, we have a live episode with Elias Torres. Elias is a co-founder and CTO of Drift, a newly minted unicorn. They're a revenue acceleration platform that uses conversational intelligence and AI to help businesses connect with customers. He was previously a VP of engineering at HubSpot, which acquired the company he founded, Performable, where he was also CTO. Elias, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us today. Now, there's some amazing news happening with Drift and everything you've done over the last few years. But before we get to that, I thought that a great place to start would be to tell us a little bit more about your path coming from Nicaragua to the United States, uh, really living the American dream, everything from coming here to go to high school, learning English, and, and everything in between. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's really a... Um story why do we call it the American dream right is because I lived in Nicaragua Central America when uh, in the 80s right I was, I was as a young kid and we were under a communist regime where we had very little resources very little food there was just access to almost nothing and so we dreamed I dreamed because my my grandmother had come and immigrated to the United States in 1975 and so I knew that a lot of my family lived in the United States. So like, that was my dream. I was like, oh, like, you know, things will be better there. That is a place where we would have opportunities because I felt in my country, we didn't have access to uh, build a business, uh, have a great job, being able to even afford buying a house. Like, it's just so complicated uh, in, in the way that we grew up. Like buying a house was just completely unaffordable, right? having a job that paid enough to save and to do all those things. So, so that's why I had this dream of coming to this country and being successful. And um, it really started in, um, in 93 when I came, uh, 17 years old, and came to Tampa, Florida. And an, an aunt of ours helped us, you know, to settle in for about 30 days. We stayed at her house for a month, her apartment for a month. And then we had to find our own apartment, our own jobs, our, our own, you know, car, and it was really rough at the beginning. You know, my first job, I was cleaning offices. I was really, you know, picking up the trash at night. It was a life insurance company, a dentist office. And we would go do those things with my mother. And and I was so proud and I was so um, thankful because I felt like we could arrive to this country and do that and have enough to even have a small apartment. You know, it's like... I don't know if I would have been able to do even do that at my country. So it started with that, right, with that position. But I focused on schooling. I focused on high school, finished high school here, went to USF, and really started realizing that people, mentors, and there's just so many people around in my life that gave me an opportunity and, and stretched out their hand to help me. You know, we had mentors in high school, um, helped me get an internship, counselors helped me apply to college. Uh, Donna Perino helped me with the scholarship to USF. And really, that kind of put me on a path, right? That I was able to get my first internship at IBM. That put me into the tech space. And it's just been an incredible series of steps 
that put me all the way to where I am today that I'm just thankful and grateful for the United States of America, you know? I love that. And as you and I have chatted a few times, I definitely related to a lot of what you're saying. Tell me a little bit more, you know, when you got here, what surprised you most about the United States? The culture, right? I mean, I'm a, I'm a Latino, right? I'm, I, I realized right away that I behave and act differently, right? I'm extremely passionate. I would use my hands. Uh, I'm, I'm spicy. I make a lot of jokes. I'm a very personal. I expect a, a, a deep personal connection from people. I, I tend to be friendly. Uh, I'm a jokester. And, and I, I had an issue, right, that wherever I was, I was getting friction when I was interacting with people in every one of my jobs. And that's something that I have been both struggling and improving along the way. You know, uh, now I you know, manage a company with 600 people. We have to do that remotely. And I have to use my heritage, my personality, and my Latino culture uh, as is both a strength and a weakness. And I have to make sure I understand how to... Um, how to balance it, right? How to use it to, to my advantage to, to really be able to help others achieve their own version of their dream. So I think that that's the biggest thing that, that has shocked me. It was like, why isn't everybody like we were in Latin America, you know? Or at least how uh, I grew up as a child, right? I felt like I had close friends and we were just always there. And, and then when I came here, I realized it's a much tougher. But I think maybe that's just a, also a fact of growing up too. Right. right. In, in what ways would you say that you've learned to use your background as a strength? And, you know, how, how can people learn from the ways that they grew up, the places that they grew up, and make sure to, to use that in, in a way that will better perform, help them better perform in their careers? I, I think the one is growing up with nothing, cleaning an office, just gives me a different perspective right in life where... You know, everything that I'm doing now is just amazing and unbelievable, right? I'm, I'm, and, and it's like, and so whenever I think that something is hard right now, I look back at my mother, I look back at my grandmother crossing the Rio Grande, you know, in 1975 with coyotes and helicopters. It's just, that just gives me this context that I've done tougher things before and what I have is not. I, I am better off and, and, and we should be, not develop anxiety of what's the worst that could happen moving forward or or what happens if something doesn't come through or worry about something before it happens. And so like, right. I think that that has been a huge, huge uh, important factor on, on how we approach that versus somebody that grew up here was well off middle class, you know, suburbia America, went to good private schools, went to a nice college. And then you put risk in front of them. You put uh, a moment in time of failure or, or the fear of not being promoted or not achieving a specific title or a specific, a specific amount of money. And so that adds a lot of stress. And me, I'm just, to me, is everything is, is upside. And so I tackle things that way. That's one. And I think the other one is our personality. I think that if you have a strong personality and passionate and care about people, you can leverage that in, in recruiting. I use it a lot. I just got a message from somebody in the company says, I need you to talk to a candidate, right? We need, we need your energy. And so that energy is always, you know, you know, if you articulate it well, I could be called a Tasmanian devil or I could become a catalyst, right? Or an interstitial. And so you got to be able to understand how do you market yourself or what you can do with your energy instead of using it for something that you might be seeing um, in a negative way, right? 
And can you tell us a little bit more about that path of really getting to understand yourself in, in your, your background? And uh, what were some of maybe like the, the, the bumps along the way and in, in how did you overcome them to get to where you are today? Well, that's the journey of life, I think. It's really uh, a path to, to self-awareness, right? I think that that's the problem. You know, we'll call it self-awareness, call it EQ, emotional quotient, right? The ability to listen. I'm a talker. I'm a big talker, right? It's like I could literally talk so much. I, I, I can run out of breath. I don't even run out of breath, but like don't let chance to other people speak. And so it's, it's something that we've been really um, open to learning, right? I, I think people, some people, if you hang out with good people, they will give you advice. They will give you mentorship. They will give you coaching. David Cancel, it's uh, my partner, CEO of Drift. And, and he's very mature. He's my opposite. He's quiet and introvert. And he's very brainiac and thoughtful and loves psychology. And so he's he analyzed me as we started working together. And he's always taught me to, you got to develop a love for psychology, understand personality types, understand, do yourself, go give yourself some of those tests, predictive index, Enneagrams, uh, color test, disc. So you learn more about yourself because it's really important, right? that you understand how you operate and be open to listening when people say that did not work, that you did this because you're not going to get that often. So when you get feedback, you got to be open. And that's when you start like um, deciding if you want to adapt or you want to change, you want to improve. Right. So I wanted to touch on one of the events uh, about your path that, that we thought was really fascinating. So, you, you know, back in high school, moving here to the U.S., learning English, and then fast forward a few years, you're working at IBM. Uh, you stay there for a decade and, you know, we're, you're moonlighting at a few startups. And then you quit IBM to go full time into the startup life. And then something happens. Can, can, can you tell us a little bit more about that story? Are you talking about the crash? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I think it's like what, what, one of the messages I'm trying to spread, right? Especially to underrepresented people, right? <laughs> Is that part of the social inequity we have in this world? I'm, I think I'm going sideways here in this conversation, but part of the social inequity we have is that we we have to take more risk than others in order to bring balance and to bring social equity into into, into the United States into the world. And, and I think that that's the only way out. I don't think that there's going to be any policy or system or just people are going to say, here, have money, here, have a house, here, have a job, here, here's the investment, go start your company, here, become an entrepreneur. We have to take out of proportion, right, uh, amount of risk in order to have more of us break the glass ceilings that, that we've been hitting and bumping into for many, many years, right? And so I think that that's kind of a little bit, now connecting it back to your question, right? I was at IBM for 10 years. My my spouse, Alejandra, we had um, three kids already. They were all under the age of five. We were overwhelmed at home. And I leave after 10 years at IBM with a six-figure salary. I was making like 100, 110 after 10 years at IBM. And um, not a lot of savings. And I just, I just like, I need, I need to go take this risk. I need to go explore this startup world. And, you know, I see people racing. I see people selling. I see people going public. And I just felt like I had to take that risk. And, and I finally did it after meeting David Cancel, my co-founder. He's Latino. I felt comfortable with him. I felt like I could trust him. And he, that was the best decision I could ever have made. And as soon as I, I trust him, as soon as I joined, a week later, 2008 in August, the real estate uh, crash happens in the market. 
whatever I little bit I had in the 401k, it's gone. I only have three months of savings and, and this company uh, is only 10 people. And so it was, and we, we, we did our first, like, you know, um, and we let, we let go, we were like maybe 15 and we let go like half of the company eight and it was scary. Right. And so like, even my starting to the startup world, it was really, really from the bottom, not heavily funded company, only eight employees, not a lot of revenue in one of the worst economic times, you know, but then I was able to learn lessons then and turn that around and realize that when we shut that down about a year later, we started another company, David, we, we called performable that we sold to HubSpot, but we were able to raise money during the, the, during the depression, right. During the crash. And like, if you have money when everybody else is not able to fundraise, that's a huge advantage that allows you to go faster. So there's always like a good side possibly, right, into into every situation. And you have to be open to explore that and find it uh, as opposed to just being like, I could have easily run back to IBM and said, this is scary, right? But if I'd done that, I wouldn't be where I was today. So we got to take more risk. So tell us a little bit more to fast forward to Drift. What was that process of, you know, having the idea for Drift and navigating the idea maze on what exactly you wanted to build next? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, there's a quote I have on my on my LinkedIn that I say I built teams first, product follows, right? And and that's something that it it, it is completely understated out there. I think we obsess too much in this world with the idea and, and don't realize that ideas are a dime a dozen and execution is like idea is one percent, you know, execution is ninety nine percent. Many people have had the idea of messaging has been around for a long time, but it's the way that we went about it, right? And understood it with the eyes wide open that got us to where we are today, right? It's hard. I mean, in my case, Drift was, I was 38 when we started Drift. So it's a lot more experience. You know, I've been already been in software since I was like 17, 18. And so there's a lot of things that I, I have understanding and, and with Dave's expertise, of how we analyzed their opportunities to pick that one, right? There's a difference between that. We kind of like did two things. One, the first two years of Drift, we explored 10, 15 different ideas, by the way. And I don't think a lot of people know that. We were trying some ideas for like a month or two. And then we would think about it, play with it, create, create an MVC, create a minimum viable product. And um, if we did not feel right, if we would test it, with many different variables, then we decide to toss it away and start over. And that was really hard on many people because everybody just wants an idea that is going to be perfect. But you got to be willing to make mistakes and to pivot, to tack, to change. And so there's a lot of things that you you think about it. You got to think about the TAM, the, the total addressable market of the idea. You got to be like the path to 100 million if you're going to raise money. You got to see how quick to people get value. You want to see what the timing in the market was. If you try to start messaging 30 years ago, it might have been too early, right? You didn't have technologies or people were not accustomed to do that. They would rather do on the phone or meet in person. So you got to be like, find the waves of what's happening and then understand like the the, the competition in the landscape. And so it's this kind of like ad hoc thing that a lot of founders don't think about it. They, they get an idea and they're like, this is a great idea and I'm going to go do it. And then when you start asking those questions when you're, when you're fundraising, then they realize they might not have the answer. So it might be too small or they're not kind of framing it in the right way. So, so we had more experience with that by, by the time we did that. And we just kept, you know, holding 
those five tests to each one of the ideas until we decided to to stick with one. Right. And, and there's a lot to unpack there, but I love how you frame the importance of the team compared to product. It reminds me, uh, Vinod yeah. Kozla has, has this quote of the, the, the team you build is a company you build. Uh, and, and, and it's very similar to, to what you're saying. Now, before we, we talk about the team and your strategies for building it and hiring, uh, you and your partner, co-founder David, uh, have had a long collaboration that you've compared to, said that it's similar to Bill Gates and Paul Allen. How do you guys work so well together? And what are the, the lessons that you've taken away from that relationship that other, co- that other co-founders can apply uh, for, for, for their own partnerships? <laughs> um, it's funny because I think I'm, I'm going to say two contradictive things. And then I, I basically, to answer this question, I have to brag about my humility. <laughs> I think that it's, a marriage is about compromises, right? And really... Um, you know, be able to be focused on on the end goal and on the loyalty that you have to one another. And and and, and I'm gonna say like we we've, we've been working together. We've known each other since about 2007, and we've been working like side by side. You know, we were just on a plane together, flying you know for six hours from Boston to San Francisco, um, and spend the whole day. We're spending then we're traveling back tonight, and and it's a it's an interesting thing because. Um, we we could have broken up so many times, right? And get into arguments and and and, and moods and feelings throughout this journey, uh, ego, um, greed, uh, money, arguments. There's so many things we 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 have gone through so through so many of those discussions that just break people apart. And you have to have this commitment and this this humility to be like, it's gonna be okay. You know, it it it, it, it you have to trust one another and say. Um, if you if you split something 50-50 with somebody, that's not the solution because one person might do more work than the other or the other person might bring more value than the other, right? It doesn't matter how you split something. It doesn't matter. Uh, We've done, we done, David and I, things for like four different companies, right? And and really never got into arguments like that. We Some things we discuss once, we settle them, and then we'll never discuss again. Uh, we have to have the ability to joke with one another. Uh, and another one, the big factor is is that back to that EQ, the, the, the psychological awareness of his personality, my personality, we're opposites, right? And, and they say opposites attract. And so like he's, he's an introvert. I'm an extrovert. I like being with people. He likes to be thinking. He likes to be creating vision, uh, more thoughtful. He's a better marketer. He's a better speaker. And so we, we combine that with my ability to be with people, resolve problems. I'm a catalyst. I'm a, I push things. I, I execute. I get things done. And so we combine our, our weaknesses and our strengths and help us understand one another. I mean, it's, it's a marriage, right? And so it's like something that people need to realize that that's sometimes the most valuable thing you could ever build, whether Drift was successful or not successful, and value that over sometimes I think selfishness or just trying to like not wanting to confront issues, right? You have to be willing to say, I'm sorry. You have to be willing to understand that you might be wrong or that you have to change something, right? Uh, and so it's right. like, it's been, it's been an amazing journey. It's good, good marriage so far. <laughs> and one of the things I've said uh, before is the importance of disagreeing and committing, uh, which is something uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, a Village Luminary, talks a lot about as well. Can you tell us more what you mean by that and maybe give us a few examples or one story of, you know, how that really played out and was important for, for, for you in, in that co-founder relationship? 
Oh, I mean, I think disagreeing and committing is it's 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 uh, one of the most important things, and, and and David and I are very used to that. But even that, it takes us time to get to that spot, right? You know, David will be pushing on a vision and say, "Let's execute this this way," or "This is important," and I kind of fight back, right? And so I'm just disagreeing with him, but I'm not committing, right? And so, or 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 he's also not doing, or the reverse is true, right? And and so like it's really more like a, a perfect example. It's like uh, for example, digital first. I'll go deep into some of our stuff, right? Dif- Drift went from being a heavy in-person company culture to a digital first. And so I'm the personal, right? I'm the extrovert. I'm the one who likes to be around people. Guess, am I going to be open to a digital first where we never see each we rarely see each other and we're always remote from the rest of the life of Drift? Hell no, right? I hate it, right? And so uh, I hate it. I've said it. But I had to listen instead of just fighting and fighting and fighting, being disagreement and cause division in the company and say, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. I come around to embrace it. Right. I had to disagree and commit that I understood what he was trying to do. And we have to be in unity. Right. And we, we, we can't be two people leading the company and one wants it and one doesn't. And so we, we have to pick one. And that's, I think, where also humility comes in, where I'm like, I'm going to trust you that this is the this level of decision is his decision. Um, I'm not going to fight it. I'm going to disagree and commit. And now I've come around to realize that he's right. It's like we we can't go back to ever to the in, in-person office, right? It's like 100% of the time, five days a week. We now are hiring great people from all over the world, from all over the country and all over the world. And and, and in order to support them and let them have the same chance of growth and, and, and upward mobility within the company, we have to be a company that respects digital first. And it's, it's going to give us an advantage over companies that are trying to go back into the office. All we have to do is figure out how to successfully do it. Right? But I've embraced it. I've been adapting my own entire life of how I work, how I spend time with people, how do we get energy. We're at an offsite right now in California with the leadership team for that reason. To spend quality time, uh, it doesn't mean that digital first is, is we're in disagreement. It means we're now in complete agreement. So. Right. Throughout your career and given all your experience, um, can you tell us a little bit more when you're going from that transition um, at Drift and at your previous uh, companies, how did you think about sourcing talent and growing the team from you know just you and your co-founder to now Drift with hundreds and hundreds of employees? What are the most underrated strategies that, 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 that you've discovered in, when it comes to sourcing talent? I think people are just underestimate how much time it takes to to recruit and to hire people it is absolutely a full-time job it's to, to this day uh 600 people we have a recruiting team i don't know how many people it's like it's like tens of people like full-time in the recruiting organization at drift to keep up with the hiring needs i still don't stop recruiting and hiring right and so one of the co-founders has to be at least dedicated you know to to um, achieve that, because especially in the early stages, you cannot afford to be paying a firm to do hires, right? And you you hire one person and immediately you like need the other person and then the other person and the other person. So like lessons in there is like you have to be completely dedicated and understand that it could be up to 50 to 75 percent of your time recruiting, especially in the early days. One of the tricks that we did is that we hire a recruiter as their first employee at Drift. And a lot of people didn't realize that, that they were like, this is an advice I gotten from Jeff Siebert uh, from Twitter. 
uh, that, that he's like uh, Aaron Levy gave him the advice. And I was like, you know what? We're going to do that. And some people were like, why would you hire a recruiter instead of an, an, an engineer, right, for example? But that recruiter freed me up from sourcing, right, and, and finding people and interviewing people. I still had to do all the interviewing, but that motion of managing a candidate through the, through the process is extremely important. And that freed me up to code more as opposed to me doing all the stuff from scratch. And so that's, that's a crazy thing I did, right? Hire a recruiter as the first employee I drive, dedicate time understanding about compensation, understanding about um, going through the network, being persistent, understanding that people are not going to respond on the first time. You're going to have to do it over and over and over. It's, it's just like sales. So people people do, oh, I'm going to start hiring. And then they're like, it's hard. And then they give up. If you don't get good at it, you'll never survive. And what are the best ways you've found to spend that time? And what are things that you've tried to do and just realize it does not work and it's not time well spent? when managing that process? I think is that one of the important things is develop a profile for who is a good fit for your company. Uh, I think that that, so in, in the sales process called disqualification, right? If you're good at, if you and if you disqualify the, the, the right customer, it'll save you a ton of time. If you spend all your energy trying to hire the wrong person, it's going to take a long time and then you realize you just wasted your time. And so I think understanding what schools are a better fit that you can hire, do you, whether you want to hire early in the career talent, whether you want to hire more experienced people, uh, whether you want to pay a lot, not pay a lot, whether you want to give big titles or not big titles, all that kind of stuff. You have to develop a, a rubric, a scorecard, a profile of who you're going to go after. For example, like I don't hire people from Google. You know what I mean? It's like just trying to be controversial here. Like if you work at Google, I don't want to talk to you. Right? You, you don't understand the scrappiness that a startup really needs. And, and how I build companies, right? We build companies the immigrant way, scrappy, move fast, no complaining. Maybe we won't have all the resources that we need to, but we still can compete in the world stage, right? And so if you, if you come from a place where you need food and you need this and you need all these other perks and stuff like that, maybe you're not going to be a good fit to the culture, right? And so it's important that, that, you, that you do that. Sorry, Googlers, can't hire you. <laughs> And tell us a little bit more, you know, once you do attract those people to join the team and grow and, and you grow the team, what are the best tactics that you've found to develop and then retain talent? I go, it goes back to personal, right? You got to be personal. You got to get to know the people. You got to understand what they need, what they want in order to, to really ultimately score that person as a good fit in the company. You have to be able to assess, you know, their skill set, their value. Uh, speed is another big issue. Thank you for re-asking that question. There, if you if you if you want to, if you take forever, if you're not able to make up your mind, you have to develop an exp- the experience to be able to say, I interview a candidate, I check for these five things, and if these things check out, then I go for it. Until you develop your own calibration to know how good you hire, you got to be good at hiring. Because if if it's a 50-50, might as well just talk to somebody, flip a coin, and then just give them an offer. Don't spend any time with them, right? And so it's a it's a combination of of selling and 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 testing, right? You you have to show your company your vision, what you're doing. You have to find people at the right stage of their lives for the right stage of your company. And so if you don't do that, so I would say personal experience. All there was there was a time it's getting it's getting harder at Drift, but there's a time where whenever we are in some events, I I, I tell the hiring stories of each individual. Every one of those people are making 
one of the most important decisions of their lives and they're trusting you to join your company, you better make it memorable. And you remember that moment and how you went about it and what promises you made to them. And so it's, it's, it's really important that you, that you understand what you're promising and what's hype and what's not hype, what you're confident, what you're not confident and that authenticity, that honesty will come through in, in your interviewing and they will trust you and they will, and they will come. Right. So it's, it's, it's about building relationships and gaining that trust for people to make such a life-changing decision. Right? I love that. Now, something we've heard you say before is that recruiting is about taking risks. What do you what did you mean by that? I, I'm changing little bit by little, right? But it's like it, it's um, it really depends on the hire, right? It's like we we live in a world where we if we if we always go towards the the people that have the most experience, right, the most success, then it perpetuates the inequity, right? And so we we have to balance that by giving opportunity to people. Like David gave me an opportunity, IBM gave me an opportunity when when I was, you know, a Latino immigrant that barely spoke English that didn't even study CS to be a programmer at IBM, right? And so it's like, we, we just have to realize of what chance you're given. Sometimes you're the one head over heels over the candidate and saying like, I need this candidate. This is the best candidate, the most experienced executive, done did, done that, worked at the big company, blah, blah, blah. And then they're going to solve all my problems. And then sometimes you're like, you have a person and you just have to, see make a bet right that this person will 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 see it through and 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 i've been getting a lot of callbacks recently with, with the with the strategic investment from vista and people are like thank you for believing in me right thank you for believing in me right out of college thank you for the opportunity you gave me people have worked uh for us for over five years now and they helped build this company when they now realize how much they did not know and so you have to balance that i think if people don't have the awareness of that you're giving them a chance and then, then they put in a facade that they're like the most important people, it's it's about honesty and, and, and open cards and, and, and when you start the relationship. Right? right. So I take chances on people. And how have your thoughts on building the team, recruiting and developing the, the culture of the company have evolved and changed as you've scaled from a tiny startup team all the way now to a few hundred employees? Well, you, one of them, you start realizing that you have to delegate and you have to have other people be able to tell the story of drift to the candidates, right? Understand, um, we created this thing called the leadership principles, where we kind of codify part of our culture, right, into the principles themselves. So so candidates can see and like, this is how we aspire or operate, right? And we want to uh, make sure that people understand that. It, and so they can develop a connection, a personal connection with the company and say, this is the kind of place I want to work at because that's what people are looking for, right? They're looking for a place that they can be a part of and that they will fit, right? If you, for example, at Drift, we have a principle, which is um, seek feedback, not consent. Uh, there are companies that the way they make decisions is until everybody says yes, right? And so if everybody says yes, then they move forward. And there are other companies where we have to, maybe only a handful of people will say yes and everybody else has to disagree and commit, right? And so that's kind of like, I'm okay with both making the decision and I'm also both okay with disagreeing and committing. But, you know, my deal is I want to drive a decision. I'm type A or so forth. You got to find the company that fits you and the principle, right? And I think that one is binary. Either companies see consensus or not. So if you like, if you want to be part of every decision, then go to a place where that's the case. If you are a person that is okay making some decisions and not making the others, 
then you come to Drift, right? So the, the culture is very important. You have to define it. And 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 so far that has not changed, uh, but teaching that culture is really difficult because right. they are in hyper growth. You're hiring so fast that people don't understand it, especially in the digital first world. Why don't we open up for some questions? Uh, Julian, do, do you want to come to the stage and ask your question? So hi, Elias. Uh, my name is Julian. Um, I'm co-founder and CEO at Dedicated, and we help businesses tap into the networks of their employees for sales. Uh, this has been a really interesting conversation. And I had joined because one of the things Mustafa had sent was about hiring for cultural fit over resume. Um, and I was interested in like understanding what that, like how do you operationalize that? Or what does that mean in, in practice? Well, in, in practice is, is um, I think we have to define a little bit what each one of those is, right? It's like, um, I would say resume could be taken in different ways, right? One resume is you start getting into, like, we only hire from Google. We only hire from MIT, right? And so that, that's kind of what I referred to. We, we, we should put less emphasis on the resume, right? Uh, but in other ways, I do put emphasis on the resume, believe it or not. People think, I'm going to disagree with people, but your past and your stay at companies will reflect and show what kind of person you are. Uh, I built I built companies. I've been with my partner for 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 13 plus years. Every one of the places we've been together, except for where we sold only down, I've been there till the end, right? And I've been at, at HubSpot was three years to take it public. Here I've been here six years, and so that shows you what kind of person I am. That is not going to give up when 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 the tough gets going. So if you're a person that is job hopping, you know, and switching uh, every year to a new place, nine months here, a month and a year and two months over there, you know, two years just sporadic, it shows a lot about what kind of decisions you're making, and and you have to have the EQ to pick the right companies, the right people, the right managers, and you have to be able to grow within the company and overcome obstacles and and, and tough stuff. So. So in some ways we do pay attention to the resume, but it doesn't have to have like those specific names, you know, or or, a progression, right, to do that. And so you want to balance on cultural fit where you're looking for people that, you know, maybe they were in big companies and they want to switch. Well, what do you have from the big company that you can apply into? Or maybe you've always been into a small company and so you are fit here. Where have you maxed out? So fit is about the principles that we have, right? And how your your decision to join a company like Drift fits into our principles. We have be a curious learning machine, seek feedback, not consensus, deliver daily results. You have to be fast-paced in getting shit done, right? If you don't do those things, then then you're going to have like a lot of stress and anxiety in a place like Drift. That is a company that moves fast, right? And so that's what we mean by, by cultural fit. Right? Awesome. Thank you, Julian. Now, Luke, do, do you want to come to the stage, give us a one-liner, and then ask your question? Definitely. Thank you, Elias. Um, my name is Luke, CEO, co-founder of Adaptic Health, and we're helping researchers des- design better clinical trials so that we can accelerate the treatment of rare diseases. So my question for you, since you talked about how you, you and your co-founder have been together for a while for multiple companies and even just focusing on the team, even over product, how has the culture varied? And you talked about even those principles a second ago. Has those principles remained the same because you guys have defined these as your core things that you want to have for the companies that you're building? Or have you seen like the culture change depending on the type of company that you're trying to build or the other people that you're bringing in? Just trying to understand how much it's been 
core to you as founders versus other factors that have played a role in culture? I mean, I think I like to simplify things. I think culture gets defined by either the founders or by the company itself. It's going to get defined by one or the other. You just have to choose, right? And so in our case, it's defined by us, right? Those principles come from the way that David and I work. And as we started hiring people early at Drift, we like when we when we sold to HubSpot, HubSpot had their principles, right? And so uh, it, it's called heart, right? And so that's what their founders wanted to do and create with the, I don't know if it was a consensus of the company or not, but that we those were not said by us, right? And so we went to Drift and we started defining how we work and we felt like we had to train people and explain how do we work. We were just realizing it was just too much conversation and training and it was easy to codify them into a set of principles. And that was the beginning of the culture and the culture to, to, the, to this day still permeates that way. And sometimes we push it less, sometimes we let it evolve, sometimes it evolves for the best, sometimes it evolves for the worst. And you have to stay true to to who you are and not try to cater to everyone. I think that that's when when we when we get in trouble when everybody wants to make it their own, and then it becomes nothing. Right. So you really have to push for that. Uh, Michelle, do you want to come up here to the stage to ask your question? Hi. Uh, hello from Boston. I'm in a conference with five thousand people, so I'm actually sitting on the floor. This is, has been a very fascinating. Um, Sharing, thank you so much. Um, as uh, we are a very early stage startup, we use uh, turbo. We are like TurboTax for FDA approvals, and a lot of our um, uh, young hires are they're super young, like a fresh college graduates, or they only have the one job and they come to work uh, with us. They they are more used to like uh, do what they are told to rather than like uh, have the initiative. So me and my co-founder were trying to educate them that uh, we over-index on the drive. So how do you quantify? Uh, can you give us some like examples or tips on how we quantify and uh, instill the culture of drive? Thank you. Yeah. Okay, there's a lot of questions in there. I think, I think that, um, I think one of them, there's a book called um, No Rules by Netflix, where you can learn a, a lot about what kind of culture they set there. And it's important that, um, that you have that you design the organization to have some density, right? Because if you if you over-index on, on, on people that are just learning how to work, then you have to give a lot of instruction, right? And so it's important that you, as you grow the organization, there's only a limited amount of people that you'll be able to directly manage and, and that you'll be able to train yourself. So mm-hmm. it, it's it's all a spectrum of cost versus time, right? And, and you're going to have to decide, you know, if you just hire people where you have to tell everybody what to do, which is okay. It's normal. People people don't like to accept that back to humility. You just started, you just graduated from school. Guess what? You do not know how to work. You do not know how to do these things. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities for people coming out of school with such great experiences. You can, you can hire people that have had co-ops, that have been in, uh, had great experiences. And so I tend to do that, right, and, 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 and have them as co-ops. But you have to have a balance of how many people that report to you know how to do the job versus not so they can mentor these people and help them catch up. But you have to um, make sure that they, you got to test them earlier of like how fast they learn and what jobs they're able to do on their own in the progression, right? This, this, this is a workflow. So you got to keep track of that drive. uh, You control the drive by really um, you set the deadlines. Don't let the team set the deadlines. You have to set the deadlines. And so we have a division. I, I set a deadline and then tell me what fits in the deadline. But I set the deadline and I want to see something done in that deadline. And, and that's how you 
you can keep the momentum and the pace of the company. Otherwise, it'll drag on forever and you'll never release something. You, you set the tone for the drive. Thank you. Thank you. So I awesome. hear that like founders uh, set the term of drive and uh, deadline is the number one driver for productivity. <laughs> yeah. I, I used to, as an engineer, you'd be on the side that I didn't like deadlines, didn't want deadlines, didn't believe in deadlines, that I didn't think it was possible. And so I would always be like, no, you cannot, you cannot estimate when this code is going to be written because there's all kinds of challenges that we do not know yet. And then, and then I switch into founder, and then I realize, oh crap, we we, we need a deadline. If not, we're dead. So yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah thank um, you. Thank you very much, Michelle. And then Elias, perhaps just as a closing question, when you're talking to young founders uh, like Michelle and others who are just starting their company now, or perhaps when you're talking to immigrants who who, who look up to you, um, what what do what, what do you want people to take away from your story? Well, the the main thing I I want people to take from the story is that I I've been incredibly blessed and and, and fortunate of being able to make my own path with the help of many people. It was not like I did it alone, but I was able to define my own success, my own dream and achieve it right to, to, to a stage where, you know, we, we minted a, a Latino unicorn with drift, right. Which is, it's not even just like an average investment, but it's a, it's a serious commitment from one of the top, top, you know, private equity firms in the world that believes in our company and that we're on a path to become a public company. Right. And so they, they backed us up. Uh, in a very, very substantial way. And, and is, um, you know, I'm at the peak of, of, of entrepreneurship. I've been at four companies, you know, one fail, one sold to HubSpot. HubSpot, we took it public. And now I've created another company from scratch to be a, a, a unicorn, just like we did with HubSpot. And so in just a sh- short amount of six years, maybe less, if we count when we actually started selling Drift uh, as a product, I want to show that that's possible because I think sometimes when people can't see one that looks like themselves, they think, well, they had a, a special access and a special network. Uh, and I will say that I did not have the right education when I started. I didn't have the right access or the network or the money or the ability to start my own company. I had no savings. I had children. I was married. It's like everything was against me. And, and this country still the American dream is, is well and alive. And I want people to just go for it and take risks. I really encouraging everybody to, to look at entrepreneurship, to change the path of, of ourselves, our families, and the generations to come. Amazing. Elias, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you check us out at villageglobal.vc.